The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, I'm Michael D.J. Eisenberg. I'm the Tech Savvy Lawyer, blogging at the Tech Savvy Lawyer page and host of the Tech Savvy Lawyer page podcast. In this podcast series, I'll be interviewing lawyers, judges, and others in the area of law to talk about where they see lawyers new and seasoned taking advantage of technology in the legal work and how all lawyers can utilize technology to better the practice, improve their services to their clients, and enhance their own lives. The podcast will try to stay focused, asking each guest three questions and asking the guests to provide their top three best answers for each question asked. There is no right or wrong answer, as each tip may or may not be the right one for you, but it may springboard an idea for you, and along the way, you may learn something new. My next guest is Nicole Black. Nicole Black is a Rochester, New York attorney, author, journalist, and the legal technology evangelist, at my case, a legal practice management software program. She is the nationally recognized author of Cloud Computing for Lawyers, published by the American Bar Association. She is also co-authors Criminal Law in New York, a Thompson Reuters treatise. She writes regular columns for Above the Law, ABA Journal, and The Daily Record. She has authored hundreds of articles for other publications and regularly speaks at conferences regarding the intersection of law and emerging technologies. Nikki, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Looking forward to it. And uh, Nikki, tell us, what, uh, what is your legal technology setup today? Well, I work remotely for my case, which is based in California, and I'm in New York. So it's the legal technology setup I use all the time, uh, which is um, my uh, MacBook Pro, Mm -hmm. uh, 13-inch MacBook Pro, and I have um, an Apple trackpad that I use, um, and that's what I use to actually um, navigate the page instead of a mouse. I have a... um, portable keyboard that's also an Apple keyboard that I use. And um, I mean, I have my iPhone with me. I'm not using that for the purposes of this. And I'm using my AirPods. So clearly Apple all the way. (laughs) You have an external monitor? I have one downstairs in the basement. I don't use it that often though. I tend to just work from my my MacBook because I'll work from home in the morning. And when it's not, you know, quarantine, <laughs> when I'm not under quarantine, I'll go to Starbucks or something like that in the right. afternoon, sort of the white noise and work there. And, and how old is your MacBook? Um, I think it's about a year. It's the third one I've had while working for my case. Um, and usually they last about two and a half years and I end up getting a new one. So I think I got this one about a year. Now, is this the MacBook or the MacBook Pro? MacBook Pro. Okay. I, I, I asked because, you know, I talked to other... Uh, guests on the podcast who also have MacBooks and Macs, and I like to hear about the longevity of their device and then compare it to other guests who use Windows. Oh, yeah, usually mine have lasted about, I would say about two and a half years, and then I'll get a new one issued to me by the company. Well, when the company's paying for it, you can't complain about that. Right. (laughs) And I want the tech company, so the tech's great. Exactly. exactly. It's, It's a wonderful company across the board, but when it comes to tech, we clearly have, we have good stuff. So, <laughs> Well, I'm envious, of course, where I work, uh, since I'm the boss, I, uh, 
I try to keep up with the new tech about on a yearly basis. Um, but let me ask you, so let's uh, sort of get to the questions. Uh, you know, with the COVID virus, uh, how are attorneys underutilizing uh, remote work, under, excuse me, underutilizing technology to do remote work during this time? Well, I think what is happening is there's, generally speaking, lawyers have been tech averse. There are certainly lawyers that are not tech averse, but overall the legal profession has been tech averse and slow to adopt new technologies at rates that the general population or other um, business verticals have done so. So um, what uh, prior to COVID coming along, lawyers were slow to move into the cloud, slow, slow to use tools that would permit them to work remotely, and they often tended to be more tethered to their offices. And what has happened is with COVID and mandatory quarantines, initially, you know, the, the issue that a lot of lawyers are having, um, and I say this from experience, I, I work, uh, I, I um, share the technology committee at our local bar association, and I'm often part of other sections and we've had a lot of Zoom meetings with a lot of different lawyers. So I'm always talking to lawyers and some of the major struggles right now that lawyers are having when it comes to remote work is first of all, determining how long are they gonna have to work remotely? <laughs> it's unclear how long this is gonna last. And so they're having a hard time making plans about whether to use remote work tools that they don't already have in their uh, technology arsenal. Uh, so initially, I think lawyers were just trying to see how long is this actually going to last. Now they're starting to realize that this may not be a short-term thing and that it, there may be a few months here. And they're trying to figure out how they're going to keep their businesses afloat and how they're going to actually practice law remotely and figuring out what the courts are going to do to facilitate that. So those are all these balls in the air for the lawyers. And now that they're starting to realize that, yes, this is going to be going on for a while. Yes, the courts are starting to acclimate and provide video conferencing options, virtual notary options, and that type of thing. They're just starting to focus on loans, <laughs> I think, right now more than tech. They are focusing on tech, but mm -hmm. some of them are really concerned with keeping their practices afloat. So right now, they're trying to figure out what loans they can get to continue to actually practice law. And then a lot of them, I think, are going to start. They are looking at tech, but they're trying to get all these things determined before they look at tech. And so the tools that they're really going to need that they do underutilize um, I would suggest you know, there, there are about three of them, perhaps. Um, first of all, I think the one that most have stuck their toes in already is mm -hmm. video conferencing, which who would have expected that because our culture as a whole has been a little bit resistant to that since we have the phone and all these other ways to communicate. Um, but video conferencing and um, the Zoom platform has been one of the ones that has um, been adopted more easily than some of the others uh, because of the user interface has really taken off. Um, and so lawyers are using video conferencing oftentimes, often to speak with other lawyers, to speak with judges, to speak um, with members of the bar association or section committees. And so, and also just to stay in touch with their friends and family. So, you know, video conferencing, I think is the first thing that everybody has just kind of thrown themselves into because they had no other way of staying connected right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's the first one. Th then the next one is going to be how do they access their law firm data and the information that they need from their offices in a way that's intuitive and reliable. That That's really the next big challenge. And so the law firms have to decide which um, documents that they need, uh, what aspects of the files that they need, how much information they need, and then how do I get that from my computer? 
uh, remote access tools tend to be really clunky. And well, from what I've heard, a lot of firms that have had that in place as a backup are suddenly realizing how poorly they actually work in most cases <laughs> um, now that they suddenly have to try to do that. So that's where the cloud comes in, which is what, um, you know, at this point, about 58% of lawyers, according to the 2019 ABA tech survey, mm -hmm. uh, are, have actually used cloud computing tools. So lawyers already kind of crossed that resistance threshold uh, about two years ago. So they're actually starting to use them. They're not as resistant to them. And so this is the perfect opportunity for lawyers to start using the cloud. And I, I fully expect that's going to happen pretty quickly. It already is. Um, I think it's going to happen at an even greater rate because when you use cloud computing, which is when your data and the software you're using is hosted on third party servers owned by someone else rather than the server located in your office, mm -hmm. um, you can access it just by through an internet connection. You log on to the internet, you go to the login site, enter your login information, and then you have immediate access to whatever is stored there, uh, the site that you logged into. So that can be documents. If it's just a document storage or document management tool, that can be billing, invoicing, and payment information. That can be client information, client communications, communications with other people. Um, uh, lead management, for example, and if you use practice management software, you'll have all that information in one place. So the documents, client information, contact information, calendar information, communications, billing, invoicing, the ability for your clients to pay you through the internet using a payment processing tool, using their credit cards or debit cards. So well, law well, practice, man, go ahead. Let me ask then, how do you alleviate uh, attorneys' concerns, legitimate concerns about bar issue and confidentiality and, and security? Yes. So. At this point, more than 30 states have addressed um, cloud computing. New York, which is where I am licensed, was one of the first ones to do that in 2008 and mm. gave the green light to cloud computing. And at this point, uh, I believe it's close to 30, have addressed specifically addressed the issue of cloud computing. And in fact, Pennsylvania just issued an opinion about remote access during COVID um, that I'll be writing about later this week. Um, and they address all those issues as well, including security. Um, it's been addressed. There's been a general standard that's already been applied and approved by um, every state that's addressed it has approved it. And that is that when lawyers um, outsource the handling of your confidential client information to a third party, you have to do the same thing you've always had to do with cloud computing providers or when you send documents to Iron Mountain to put in storage after the uh -huh. case is closed. You have to vet that third party provider you have to thoroughly understand how they're gonna handle your information, who will have access to it. And in the case of cloud, that's who will actually have access to the physical server and who will have access to the data stored on the server. Um, you know, I gotta understand um, backup. Is it backed up? Is there geo redundancy backups on different servers on different coasts to protect your data in case there's a natural disaster? How frequently is it backed up? And you wanna understand um, how they handle the information um, and are they, are, is it encrypted? encrypted at rest and in transit, and who holds the encryption keys. You know, you have to understand all these different things and you have an obligation to vet that provider and anyone else who's gonna have um, any integrations that come into that provider's tool as well. So every company that's gonna have access to your company's cloud computing data, um, you need to vet them and understand how they're gonna handle that data. And most opinions will say you need to do that on a regular basis. Maybe once a year, check in and make sure nothing's changed. Well, and that kind of, 
Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, well, one question I want to ask about the cloud computing, and I, I don't want to go off too much on a tangent at this point, is you talk about geolocation. Yeah. Do attorneys have to, do U.S.-based attorneys have to have their cloud computing backups and syncing, if you will, all contained and serviced in the United States, or can they be international? Is there any issues with that? It's recommended that you ensure that the company keeps it within the confines of the U.S., um, and that when they have server, you know, the servers are overloaded, need to shift um, data somewhere else, that it doesn't get shifted outside of the U.S. Because once it leaves the U.S., it triggers EU laws, for example, about data protection and data privacy, and mm -hmm. that can affect your ability to access your data. So you're um, better off ensuring that the data stays in the U.S. And I would say, um, I can say pretty confidently that nearly any company who serves U.S. lawyers. Mm -hmm already has those measures in place because it's that's so well established. But you do need to check and make sure about that. Um, one other thing I did just want to throw in there about security sure. that I think is important is um, because you have an obligation to thoroughly vet um, every company, once you start having all those integrations into your um, cloud computing software, you need to vet all those companies on a regular basis too. So, um, and it also increases the cost of the software. So at a time like this, you might be better off with one login, one bill, where um, you have one company that provides you with all those tools in one place. It reduces your costs and it provides a more secure environment. And you're not in the business of having to vet all the different providers that are going to provide the tools to make your process work smoothly. Instead, they're all in one place. But I can talk about that a little more, um, depending on the questions down the road here. So. Sure. Okay. Uh, well, let's let's keep it moving then. Uh, well. We oh, yeah, so what, and I was going to answer one of the last. Tool in terms yes, of yes, that's what for... I was going to go to. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, um, good. Well, I was just going to say that the last one is communications tools, generally speaking, um, that allow you to communicate internally and externally. So, um, eFax uh, yes. and uh, collaborate. So, you want to have eFax because those landline fax machines are not going to be going everywhere that you're going. <laughs> um, and eFax has been around for over a decade now. You're also going to want um, possibly some kind of chat tool or Slack tool so that you can communicate with your colleagues, whether that's built into your practice management software, some ability to communicate, or it's Slack or something like that, or Google chat if you're using Gmail for your G Suite for your company's uh -huh. email. Um, and you also want to have some ability to collaborate probably on documents. Um, so that could be Google Docs or Office 365, this ability to create and collaborate on documents, comment on them and create them as a team rather than um, siloed and then having to email them back and forth. So that's another thing. And, um, and it just depends on what your needs are and how you think that you're going to need to, oh, and also VoIP. You're going to possibly want to have some kind of VoIP um, voice over internet protocol phone system set up because uh -huh. that landline one isn't going to do you much good at this point because you're not in your office. So that's right. another option. And I wrote an ABA journal article that was published last month. Um, uh, top seven tech tools that you need to run a remote law practice. And in it, I refer to those different classifications and then cite back to articles I've written on each of those different types of tools. So that might be a useful resource for people looking to set up their remote office. I'll be sure to put that in the, uh, in the show notes uh, okay. when this is published. Well, I, I have to ask you, uh, just going back a little bit on some of your, your answers, when you mentioned VoIP, is VoIP still as prominent as it was, say, five years ago? Are people moving from VoIP to cell phones? Well, where VoIP comes in handy is, and that's the voice over internet protocol, mm -hmm. so voice, for example. Um, 
especially for larger firms. Um, but even if you're, um, so a small firm, a solo or small firm, you can use your cell phone probably to handle your phone calls, especially if you're the one that's answering the calls and you don't have mm -hmm. a receptionist. But once you have a receptionist and multiple attorneys, the reason people have these phone systems in their office is because there's a central phone that all the yeah. calls come into, a central line, and then the receptionist answers it and then sends it to different people, whether it's to their voicemail box or to their phone, um, and takes messages. And um, there's also conferencing, phone conferencing capabilities, right? right? So larger firms, they're not using their cell phones for work, typically. Um, they're often using the landline system in the office. So once you have a firm of more than three or four people, whether it's lawyers or lawyers and support staff, once you have that number of people that are no longer in the office, the VoIP, um, voice over internet protocol systems, Google Voice isn't going to cut it, but there are other ones like Ring Central is uh -huh. one of them that comes to mind that I mentioned in that article. The other ones I can't remember off the top of my head, but they're in the article. But what those do is they provide you with that capability, but over the um, internet. So your phone uses the internet, um, and but they provide you with those conferencing capabilities, those forwarding capabilities, you know, the one central person answering and then sending the calls all out to all the other people at their homes, which is where they're probably practicing from. So it gives you that uh, telephone system capability over VoIP, which your cell phone alone isn't going to do once you have a handful of people that um, are part of a large a firm rather than just one or two. If you well, remember, one thing you can do is have companies like Ruby Receptionists and mm -hmm. Smith AI, you know, be the front line and answering the call. And then, you know, if appropriate, relaying it to you, back to you, whether it's directly to your cell phone or to your VoIP or to even a landline. Um, right. or, or they also have the ability to um, call multiple numbers at one time. So to find out, you know, where you may be if they need to get a hold of you. So you, you talk about what the attorneys have to do, them being tech adverse and some suggestions on how they can implement tech into their practice now given COVID. But what about judges? You know, I see all these brown bags and these CLEs, especially during this time, talking about, you know, what attorneys can do, but I don't see a shout out toward judges because don't they need to be brought into this, uh, into the fold here? Well, that's a good point. Um, uh, and just going back to the virtual receptionist, I wrote an article on that too. Um, so if people want to mention Ruby receptionist and Smith AI and also virtual chatbots are all covered in that same ABA journal article. Um, but in terms of judges, um, I, what is happening is most jurisdictions are starting to um, very suddenly, and I never thought I would actually see this in the next two decades, um, provide video conferencing um, for certain ne you know, necessary, um, not routine, but necessary legal matters, especially the ones that have constitutional um, mandates in terms of timing, like criminal law and some family court issues, you know, and, ex and expediency is required. Right. But so the, the courts are now, a lot of them, um, it's happening in New York, are starting to provide video conferencing for those types of things. So that is one example of the courts um, stepping up the tech and right, trying right. to provide some way to do that. Um, it's one thing that there's a lot of pressure on the judges, and I'm seeing that here in my um, part of New York State, in my county, is there's a pressure to um, allow to more e-filing to sort of get mm -hmm. that going so that people can start using the e-filing system for more routine filings to try and get things moving because it's affecting lawyers' livelihoods. And so, but the difficulty is that a lot of these systems are built on 
just as the loan systems are, the problem they're having with all those loans and stuff. A lot of these systems are built on like 1980s <laughs> programming technology. They're so old that they can't even find people that know the languages to revamp these things. So, um, and the court systems have, I mean, just when you go to the e-filing websites, they look like something from 19, the 1990s. They're so outdated. So you can only imagine what the, the programming underlying those, soft, those sites is like. So I, I think still that's have, one of, I still have an issue with a court. I won't name which one that uses <laughs> JavaScript still. Yeah. As like, wait, um, and it never works quite right, especially on a Mac and sometimes even for Windows, it doesn't work quite right. And then you got to figure out, well, how do I get this filed when it's due today? Right. And that's yeah. 2000 something, you know, technology, yeah. not like 1990s or 80s, you know? Oh, yeah. I, I, I yeah. yeah, we could, we could lament about that for a long time, I think. Yeah. But <laughs> let, let's move to the next question, which I, I know will be a little bit uh, very uh, close to you. Um, how do lawyers... Uh, use CRMs like my case to help with that transition, you know, from working from, you know, in a firm downtown or brick and mortar building to working from home. Uh, well, so my case uh, has my case and um, some of our competitors as well, just generally law practice management software. Mm -hmm. um, we have CRM um, features built into the front of it. Not all of the law practice management companies do, but um, so the, Law practice management software aspect of my case, which is the bulk of it, is um, the, uh, I discussed this briefly earlier, but the ability to have all of your law firm's data and information in one centralized location that can be accessed over the internet. So as long as you have a internet access on any internet enabled device, you can access your law firm's information. And that's the beauty of cloud-based law practice management software is that it allows you to, especially when you're working remotely, have all of your law firm's information right in, right accessible from your, um, any device that you're using. So you can um, access documents, share documents mm -hmm. um, with clients, with other attorneys, with staff. You can have conversations with staff through portals and client portals also that are built into these tools. So you can communicate securely with clients and um, other attorneys in an encrypted centralized environment. You can um, uh, track time on your computer or your smartphone, and you can then um, invoices are automatically created from that. And some of them have passive time tracking, like my case has that. It'll you as you look at the end of the day, and it'll tell you here are all these things that you've been doing that have not yet been billed, or do you want to create um, time entries for these things? Um, so you can create an invoice from that track time, and mm -hmm. then send those invoices out through the system to your clients, and your clients can then click on the email or the text message that they received uh -huh. and immediately pay using a credit card or debit card. And so it makes it so much easier to get paid and to send out invoices. And um, we also have automated payment reminders built in. So you don't have to keep reminding them, it just automatically sends those reminders out. And um, then there is CRM, the lead management tools are built in that allow lawyers to um, track leads and manage the lead um, through the system until it converts into an actual client um, and a retainer letter is um, signed. And we have built in some of these tools, including my kids have built in e-signature mm -hmm. for retainer agreements or for any other documents that you need signed, which are particularly useful. This is particularly useful now, the e-signature tools. And um, there is a renewed interest in those now that lawyers are all working remotely. And now that the states are starting to change the rules to allow e-signatures because of the necessity um, due to remote work. So the, the nice thing is you have one login 
mm -hmm. one bill for all those different features in one place. And when you don't already have access to those tools and you're trying to set it up quickly, it's a lot easier to just use one tool that provides you with all those in one place rather than trying to jury rig a system with document management here, pay for this e-signature tool here, pay for this billing system, mm -hmm. pay for payments processing over here, and then somehow make sure that they can all tie into one another and talk to each other, which doesn't always work well. So it's a one-stop shop. Right, yeah. So if I may, uh, does my case allow you to retain a copy of your office file on your computer, say if you don't have internet access, you know, maybe you're going on a plane and you know that you're sunk with the most recent materials before you get on there and you don't have internet access, or if the power goes down in your house, at least you have what you're working on. Does that make sense? Yeah, um, we have a Dropbox integration mm -hmm. that, um, well, first of all, you can manually back up your firm's data, but uh, that's usually just the data itself, not the documents every day. You're, just, mm -hmm. you're allowed to have one backup every day. Um, but um, in terms of documents, with the um, Dropbox integration, mm -hmm. you have the ability to have um, offline access to the documents that are stored in Dropbox and synced into my case as a two-way okay. sync. Okay. So that's one way to um, accomplish that. And does my case and let alone other CRMs, do they offer some sort of end-to-end uh, -end encryption? My case has, uh, so there's two different types of encryption, right? So end-to-end okay. um, -end encryption is um, where it's encrypted in transit and encrypted arrest. And that's what most lawyers need and that's what my case offers. Um, and so what that does mean is that, um, and this is why you have to understand who has access to your firm's data on the company side. Mm -hmm. um, with my case, the vast majority of law practice management software companies, um, it's end-to-end -end encryption, but someone from the company can access your information. Um, and that's often needed when you need them to take a look at it when you're having issues. And for the vast majority of lawyers, um, the same can be said, for example, of Iron Mountain when you send documents there and store them in a warehouse. Mm -hmm. Somebody can look at them. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Right, right. Someone that works there can open the box and look right. at them. And for the vast majority of lawyers, that's okay because um, as long as you know that they have policies in place, mm -hmm. you need to exercise reasonable care to ensure that your confidential client right. data is going to be continue to be confidential. The only lawyers that need that extra step of holding the encryption key themselves rather than the company holding the encryption key mm -hmm. are those who handle um, IP matters with highly classified or sought after corporate information, for example, mm -hmm. people that represent Chinese dissidents, people that represent celebrities in divorces, people that represent someone charged with terrorism. Um, because in those cases, for political or monetary reasons, someone might want to access that data and use it in, uh, okay. in some way, including the US government, by the way. Um, <laughs> you, uh, they may want to issue a FISA warrant to the cloud company. Right. And when they do that, the company has to provide the information and they can't tell you because it's treason that it was even requested and that they provided it. So those lawyers are the ones that would want to actually hold the encryption key. So, and mostly in the case of a FISA warrant, when the government requests that information, the only answer that the cloud company has is, well, we don't hold the encryption key. You got to go talk to the lawyer to get it. And that way you as the lawyer know they're requesting this information. I can choose to not provide it and then you face all the treason issues but <laughs> at least you know you're one way or another what's happened to your client's information right very few lawyers are in that situation and most of them are handling information that the government is not going to want to access and so for 99 percent of lawyers this end-to-end -end encryption that my case provides and that the um 
most other providers provide is more than sufficient. Well, if I may, so if I'm using my case or any other similar CRMs, when I'm out and about, say at a Starbucks, on an airplane, uh, in a courthouse, do I still need to use a VPN, a virtual private network? I think it's always better to use a VPN because, uh, or to use your um, smartphone and tether your uh, smartphone or a MiFi and mm -hmm. tether your um, internet connection to that so that you're using that data from that as the internet connection. Because what happens is when you are using um, public Wi-Fi, what that basically means is that anyone who ha has the know-how can basically just see what's happening on your computer and read that information. Um, as I understand it, when it's, you have HTTPS, they may not be able to see that, uh -huh. um, but it's still always better. And that's what obviously practice management software has. It's, it's a secured encrypted um, connection, but you're still just better off not risking um, that as an attorney, generally speaking, because you don't want them seeing what's on your screen, let alone trying to somehow access right. that information. Right. Um, so you either want to tether it to your phone or MiFi or use um, a VPN. One of those two options is always a smarter choice. Public Wi-Fi is never a good idea for anyone. To use. Well, here's a $64,000 question. Do you still have to use VPN when you're working uh, from your home office? That is a good question. Home offices have, it depends on how you've set up your Wi-Fi. Mm -hmm. You know, so you can um, encrypt your Wi-Fi so that a password's recorded. Right. And, um, you know, nothing is, a, there's no such thing as absolute security. Mm -hmm. um, which is what some lawyers seem to want to be guaranteed, but that doesn't exist. It doesn't matter whether you're using um, a server in your um, office's closet or if you're using cloud computing software or wherever you're using your computer from. Right. Someone with a know-how is going to be able to hack in in almost every situation um, or use phishing or use mm -hmm. social, mm -hmm. you know, all those different ways that they get information to somehow hack into something and get some of your information. Um, or if you're not uploading, or if you're not updating inter Internet Explorer, for example, that creates all these openings for them to get into your system. So there's no such thing as absolute security. And in most situations, as long as you have an Internet Wi-Fi that's protected, it's not wide open, then um, and you use the most uh, uh, secure option available. And these days, there's very secure options, then you're fine. You, know, you just have to make sure to set your home, your home Wi-Fi system up with security when you create it. And if it's not set up that way now, go back and change it. Well, thank you. I appreciate those thoughts. Uh, well, let me ask you the, the last question. Uh, you know, with the shelter in place becoming the new norm, how do you see the practice of law changing in the future? Well, I love this question because it is, um, it, it, this shelter in place has had incredible ramifications on both our culture and the practice of law. I mean, we have seen things happening that I think, you know, just for the environment that no one had envisioned happening mm -hmm. um, in such a short amount of time. But with um, the practice of law, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's just unbelievable that the amount of change that's already happened. And someone actually said to me during a bar association um, Zoom call, because um, I've been writing about this since for over a decade now, trying to get lawyers to use tech. Mm -hmm. And someone said, if I didn't know better, Nikki, I would think you'd engineered this whole thing. I'm like, right. I went to Wuhan, you know, bioengineered a virus, released it, hoping it would eventually get back here to Rochester and make you guys jump into tech. But it's, you know, this, you couldn't ask for a more perfect storm in that regard. You know, I would never wish that this happened to anyone. Um, 
I don't, you know, but the side effect is that it has forced lawyers to use tools and look at these tools and open and have an open mind about them in a way that they never would have before. It's forced courts to do video conferencing uh-huh, in a month. Uh-huh. You know, you never would have thought that would happen. And lawyers are using Zoom and cloud computing and they're starting to figure out these old school lawyers who barely have a smartphone are trying to figure out how to use Zoom It's on, at these, on some of these calls. It's unbelievable to see this. And so I think that it is moving the legal uh, it's kind of like e- when e-discovery was mandated, you know, mm-hmm. um, the that all of a sudden that became a billion dollar industry in less than five years or something because lawyers had to use and they didn't have a choice. And when lawyers don't have a choice, they'll reluctantly use tech. And that's what's happening right now. This is this has had the same effect as e-discovery, but on a broader scale. Suddenly lawyers don't have any option. If they want to stay afloat, they're going to have to use some types of tech. And they're slowly but surely... Um, now that they realize this may not be short term, trying to figure out a path that's going to work for them. And so it has been unbelievable. Let's fast forward to tech adoption in the last month, five years. And if this goes on for another month, I would suggest it's going to fast forward legal tech adoption by what we would have otherwise seen 10 years from now. So oh, wow. it's okay. super exciting, I think, in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, you know, the, what's the word I'm looking for? The six million, what's the, the something million dollar question. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember, but the, uh, the big question is um, <laughs> once things start to return back to normal, is this going to be a permanent change or are lawyers going to want to roll things back to what they're used to? Depends on how long this lasts, I think. So, Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because I think part of it will depend on, you know, what do lawyers see as being economically beneficial? Uh, and, you know, one, I had an interesting conversation with my uncle earlier, and he was commenting how, not to date myself or anyone, but, you know, the younger generations, you know, they're so used to being on their devices, you know, that like he had some of his grandchildren over and they were all sitting next to each other, but communicating through instant message chat, right. you know, instead of talking to each other. Um, and, you know, quite frankly, you know, you save so much time from having to go into the office um, and then come home, especially if you're in the big cities, uh, yeah. that it just, it saves so much time, aggravation and exhaustion. But, but then there's the flip side, of course, everyone's going to be expecting you to be working all the time, but that, that's a story for another day. Um, so do you think jury trials will catch up to this? That's a really interesting question. It's, I think it's going to be difficult because, um, the only analogy I can think of right now is people that I know that lead teams that are leaders uh-huh. that have to, um, it's like for me who mostly does a lot of writing and speaking, it doesn't affect me as much, but if you are leading a team of people and I would suggest that's similar to having to interact with jurors, for example, uh-huh. when you need to be able to assess how someone's reacting to you or how they're feeling that day or see their body language therapists also, I think are struggling with this, but you know, see, When you're trying to read a person, it's a lot more difficult to do remotely versus in person. And so that might end up being the difficulty with jury trials and also in some ways even just um, I'm understanding there's some difficulties with judicial uh, conferences with judges and opposing counsel, in part because of the Zoom platform and people try to interrupt each other and talk over each other and 
you know, different faces pop up on the screen and someone else suddenly blanked out because the other person's controlling the audio. And so there are some difficulties even just there technically. But um, I think it's, I think it'll be very difficult to have jury trials in, in that. Uh, I almost feel like they would need to be in the courtroom and somehow have systems set up to separate people. I don't know how it would work, but I, I'm not sure. That's a really interesting question. And I think time will tell how long it takes how long this goes on and how much of a pain point it becomes to not have these jury trials. It will be interesting to see how that um, progresses in the future. I, I can tell you that, you know, I, my day job, I practice uh, before the Department of Veterans Affairs, and they've been having a lot of hearings with the veterans, the judges and representatives, all of their respective, you know, homes, uh, just doing video. I mean, this is something they had started just barely scratched the surface uh, like four to six weeks ago. And they accelerated the program because they don't want to have in-person hearings because, you know, mm -hmm. bringing the veteran to the, the hearing room. And then, of course, you have to have everyone else there and they want to keep the social distancing. And, you know, it, they have had hiccups, but I can tell you it's been moving quickly. Um, and I have a feeling that will become the new norm. It'll be interesting. I mean, it's, we'll save a ton of time. Lawyers spend so much time, especially like criminal lawyers and civil lawyers, especially right. criminal lawyers, sitting in court just sitting there waiting for the case uh -huh. to be called. And it will, I, I think as lawyers maybe get used to remote work, get used to video conferencing, and um, they may want to do that in situations where it's not where it's not needed that for you to be in person with someone. So that may replace it, we'll have to see. Well, I will say that, you know, the VA work that I do, uh, that when I have these hearings before the Board of Veterans Appeals, they, they do it on a rolling docket basis you know, they'll have four to six hearings scheduled that day and whoever shows up first gets to go first and so on and so forth. Um, and, you know, depending on who gets there first, you could be first, you could be last. And then, you, you know, and then you never know when you need to come back or not come back. Uh, and it's been saving a lot of time at my end uh, that, you know, it's been freeing up some time. So that's been fantastic. Uh, at least, you know, from a practitioner's point of view. Right. Another thing that I think is really nice about the video conferencing is mm -hmm. um, people are getting used to it. They're getting used to the fact that it used to be when your dog would bark, people like, oh, I'm so sorry, my dog barked. And you'd feel like it was a, um, a stigma to be, you know, right, video right. conferencing or calling from a coffee shop. Right. And now everybody's in the same boat and um, people are working where their children are. So people also understand that there are children there and that you're a parent and also the men are there as well. The men are with their families versus it always being the stigma that women are working from home with their kids. And, and I think men are also, uh, some men are very active in their, their families. I'm not trying to say they're not, but other men are not and they're getting a sense of how demanding it can be. <laughs> and so hopefully it's also forwarding some of the social, um, social issues and making it more um, accepted to work from home and the realities of working from home will hopefully become a little more accepted as well. So we'll see about that. But yeah, interesting. I, I, I like these insights and uh, you know, I, you know, my, my practice, uh, I mostly work from the office at my house. Um, and I know with my wife working from home a hundred percent now, she has a, I think a new, appreciation for what I do. Not that she right. didn't appreciate the work I did, but she realizes how intense it can be when you are at home all day working. Um, right. 
you know, and why the need for, you know, going to a Starbucks and working for a couple hours there or getting to the gym just to get out and have a little, you know, human FaceTime. Right. But And I, I didn't mean to, it's, I probably should have phrased it better and said that it, you know, the person, the person who worked in them rather than just laying it all on men. <laughs> but, well, uh, no, I, I know both men and women and, and I was not offended and I don't think you need to worry. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think the male listeners are going, oh my gosh, I can't believe she said that. Um, <laughs> but I, I think we're okay. Um, well, I want to thank you for participating in my podcast today. Uh, I hope, I know I've enjoyed it. I hope, uh, and I know I've learned a lot as well. And I hope others have, as others have too, is where can people find you? I um, can be emailed at uh, N-I-K-I.B-L-A-C-K, Nikki.Black, at MyCase.com, M-Y-C-A-S-E.com. I am on Twitter at, uh, at Nikki Black, N-I-K-I-B-L-A-C-K. I blog at the MyCase blog, and um, as mentioned previously, Above the Law, and I write an ABA journal column, and I write for the Daily Record, and I have a blog as well called Sui Generous. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Tech Savvy Lawyer Page podcast. I hope you enjoy yourself, learn something new, and we'll come back again in about two Tuesdays for another podcast. If you have any ideas about the presentation, questions about what we discussed today, or ideas for future episodes, please leave comments on the blog or email me directly at michaeldj at the page. Have a great day and happy lawyering.